You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Whites. Greetings and welcome to the BH Photography Podcast. Today we are very fortunate to welcome Chris Burkhardt to our show. Chris is an accomplished explorer, photographer, creative director, speaker, and author. Traveling throughout the year to the furthest expanses on our planet, Burkhardt captures stories that inspire humans to consider their relationship with nature while promoting the preservation of wilderness and wildlife. His work has been published by National Geographic Explorer, ESPN, Men's Journal, and almost every surfing magazine known to exist. His clients include Apple, Sony, Land Rover, REI, and Toyota. Today, we're going to concentrate on the photographer aspect of Chris's work. We're going to talk with Chris about how he chooses his subjects and locations, how he decides which gear he's going to be bringing, what lenses he's most comfortable with, as well as his post-production techniques, and I hope we can take a deep dive into a few of the more well-known images Images to find out how they were created. Welcome to the BH Photography Podcast, Chris Burkhart. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. That was damn, that was quite an intro. <laughs> you like that, huh? By the way, you I know, don't, I don't you, know if I'm worthy of all those of all those accolades, but um definitely uh definitely try okay. to live up to that. <laughs> uh, what we were planning on doing is we were gonna we were gonna actually record the show while sitting out on the ledge outside the office window with a fire engine spraying water on us, just so you'd you feel should. at home. You know? Yeah, you should. It, it would definitely, it would definitely enhance the mood. I think. I mean, the temperature needs to drop about thirty or forty degrees. That's true. Yeah, yeah, it's it's only like sixty degrees or seventy. It has to be a lot colder. So it, maybe it wouldn't work for you. So um, what, what what is the coldest you've ever worked in? Can you put a number on that? That's a good question. I mean, I mean, what? Ah, that's a that's a that's an interesting question because the reality is, um, I think for me, a lot of these experiences swimming around in an Arctic ocean somewhere, trying to shoot surfing, they're, they're really brutally cold. But at the same time, I think, you know, there's parts of Minnesota that are, that are way colder, you know? So, um, to, to each, to each their own, really, I think, I think what it is, it's not so much about the cold, like it's never like, Oh, I've, I've worked in 20 below, or I've worked in 30 below. It's, how long are you willing to subject yourself to those places? That's see, that's the difference because because with the right clothing and the right attire, anybody can be comfortable in those conditions. When that's when you're true. shooting in the yeah. yeah, when you're shooting in the water uh, and you're shooting surfing, the, the the critical thing is that you're diving under waves and you're actually you're actually in a fairly warm state mm. because the ocean is never going to drop below thirty two. Right, so you got to think about this, you know, the ocean is balmy compared to the air, which at times in these places when it's booming offshore wind and really, really howling, you know, the wind can be like negative 10, negative 20 with wind chill. Um, and, and at that point, that's where like your lips and face and all the exposed pieces of your body that are above the water, those just get chilled to the bone. And I've had pretty bad, like onset of hypothermia and I've lost a lot of nerve I've had a lot of nerve damage in my hands and, and parts of my face from exposing myself to those conditions for too long. And I would say it's more just stubbornness than it is any type of creative, um, 
creative or you know necessarily uh, altruistic pursuit that's that's forced me to be in those conditions for well, a long me, time. What just on that thought there? Can you think of any moment where staying out past the point of where you should have stayed out got you that photo that you really wanted or needed, or or is it generally one of those things like you know what I had it in the first ten <laughs> minutes, but I just I kept need a hot myself. chocolate. <laughs> I would I would venture to say to be totally honest that that within those first five minutes, I've probably gotten what I've needed. Yeah. Um, you know, or not, not five minutes, but like if I'm out in the water for an hour, hour and a half, and that last half hour is literally the most blood curdling, excruciating pain I've ever experienced. I probably didn't get anything good at that point. I know, I know what my limits are. Five minutes just seem like 10 hours to me out there. I don't know. It, it does. It does. It really, it really does. I mean, just like as a comparison, that. I think I'm a big shot because I put my top down when it's 24 degrees in my car. I'm looking at you swimming around with icebergs around you and I'm saying, I'm just a wuss. Well, that's <laughs> just the truth of the matter is like, it's a, it's a harsh reality that this is, this is kind of what you end up experiencing in these places is you, you end up experiencing some sort of visceral um, engagement with the landscape that I think I think creates better stories, mm -hmm. but not necessarily better images. And what you find is that the moment that you start to get in somewhat hypothermic or, or whatever you, you, um, you are, you are not taking great pictures at that yeah. point. It's survival mode. You're right. not thinking creatively or anything yeah. like that. You do know you, what I mean? Do yeah. you, do you monitor the, uh, the weather where you go? I imagine you have to, because you go to some places where, you know, it could just flip on a dime and you're in trouble all of a sudden. I would assume. I mean, that's that's a part of it. You know, you, you have to always be cognizant of the, con not only the conditions, but of just like how your body's reacting because some days you're feeling great. And some days you're feeling really, really not great. And it can be about how much sleep did you get? You know, what did you eat? Like, it's, it's kind of an odd part of photography to even talk about or consider because usually people are just like, wait, you, what are you talking about? You know, how does your diet or all these things? But when, when your job isn't kind of be immersed in these situations, you have to be usually just as, just as, uh, capable as the athlete in some mm -hmm. capacity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. And like you were saying, I mean, when you start to be aware of your conditions to the point that it's affecting things, you, you know, creativity is kind of goes out the, out the window. I mean, it's, uh, you know, survival, right. like you said, survival takes over or other aspects. Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, a lot of your, your images, whether they're adven adventure shots or even some of the commercial work seem to depict a kind of a lone figure and tiny by comparison to the vast and the gorgeous landscapes that they're placed in. You know, this, yeah, like, this big yeah. figure, you know, small figure, big landscape. Is it is it fair to say that this provides an insight into your views on nature? I mean, is it is it simply? This is a, this is a great great question. Um, it's a it's a really funny thing. I think nowadays this is obviously a, a, a an awesome trend in photography to kind of you know bring context to the image and and scale to the subject and et cetera et cetera et cetera. But the truth of the matter is is that when I started. Um, in photography, I was shooting surfers as a, this was my career as a, as an action sports photographer was shooting for the magazine. So mm -hmm. I was taking these athletes to these amazing locations or vice versa. They were taking me. And, you know, one thing you'll know about surfing is that you're in some of the most beautiful arenas in the world, natural arenas. And so my choice wasn't so much to like include a subject into the landscape because I was shooting the subject. It was more about including a landscape into my subject or, or pulling back right. and revealing a landscape around my subject. So, so this is 
you know, this is how I was trained. This is how I grew up. I was always shooting a subject, an athlete, whether it's climbing or surfing or whatever. And when you think about those sports, you're not like necessarily, you know, in a situation where you're just like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, bring somebody along to hopefully place them into my photograph. It was just natural and it makes sense. So what you're actually saying is that you, you, what you're really doing is you're taking environmental portraits. I would say that that's a really big part of it. You know, to be honest is I'm trying to give the viewer context to the beauty of these places Mm. that are so that are, that are, I think so amazing. And it was a trend setting thing. I mean, it was a trend setting thing, but it was also at the time, a very new thing. If you, if you're familiar with, you know, surf photography from like the seventies, eighties and nineties, a lot of it was 600 millimeter from the beach, tight action, yada, yada, yada. So, but, but as you look at, you know, the evolution of action sports from motocross to climbing to what, you know, people are more and more shooting more pulled back and more pulled back and showing these incredible locations that before you're like, well, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you have naturally gravitated to show that anyway? Because it was not the trend of the era. It wasn't what the magazines wanted. Do you ever get any pushback on that? Even at the, in the beginning of your career where, where they're like, listen, we want the two, we want the surfer, we want the facial expression. And you're like, you know, uh, and, and you said, no. And, and that's, like, and that's an amazing, amazing emerging thing that, uh, Certain people do that really well. They right. shoot tight, beautiful. Uh, that's just never been my forte, right. probably because I've grown up in an area where landscapes are always king, and I, I had close access to national parks, and I was inspired by the work of Michael Fatali and Ansel Adams and a lot of Edward Weston and a lot of people who were primarily landscape photographers by trade, and so that work influenced me heavily. I was going to say there's, there is a tradition, especially in, in, you know, 19th century Western photography of they place that, you know, that one individual way in the top of the mountain and, and you can barely see them, but, uh, it gives you some scale, you know, and I think a lot it of that was done a for human scale. element to it because I think people relate to photographs in which people are in them. I think if you did take the same photograph with and without a person, I think most people would prefer the one with the person in it just because they could relate to it more. It's just a human element. I agree. I, I think that there's, and to be honest, I really cherish the human experience. I really cherish the opportunity to relate to things and to provide people or my viewer an opportunity to relate. Um, and, and I think that regardless of the fact that some of the things I photograph are totally unrelatable, I think that when you see a person or a subject or or a sense of scale, you, you can in some way... Um, connect to it. Something I'm, I'm curious about, uh, I, I looked at a lot of your work and I read a lot of your little pieces that were out there in the videos, and according to- I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> according, according to uh, 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 your site, you you basically uh, uh, gave up on everything Like at age 19, said, I'm going to be a photographer, this is what I want to do, and you're living out of a car for a while, and you're basically your whole life is about taking pictures and pursuing adventure. And that's how you got to where you are today. And you're no longer living in a car. You actually have a large van that you're living out of now, I think. Uh, <laughs> no, your studio is absolutely beautiful. But you've built a, an enterprise around, yeah, around this so little different. dream you had when you were 19. And now when right. you started off, yeah. it was basically you were shooting your pictures that you wanted to do and that ultimately got you to a point where you now have sponsors and commercial accounts that – pay for all of this and make all of this possible and you're still able to play, which is pretty cool. Um, how, many, how much of your current workload as far as assignments and traveling 
are you generating or and what percentage of it is being generated by your clients saying, hey, we have a good idea? Or are they saying to you, what ideas do you have? How's it working these days? I would say one of the downsides to my work is that I don't, I really don't travel to places for holiday or for any type of vacation um, or even personal projects. I, when If I have a personal project that I want to make happen, I, I just like everybody else, I find um, a commercial client or some type of somebody to come in and support that project, whether it's a film or a book or whatever. And so I've lucky, luckily gotten myself into a position where my clients that I work with, and you know, there's been you know a laundry list of them, um, usually are adhering to my advice when it comes to where should we go shoot this, what should we shoot, where, and what is the what is the you know the goal in mind, et cetera, et cetera. And so I really aim to kind of bring that to the table. Um, I really aim to uh, share with them my insight in term in in, sen- in the sense of what I've learned from utilizing tools like social media to to garner you know a greater understanding of what the general public wants. And so, you know, one of the worst things that can happen as a photographer is to be hired simply because you have a camera and can shoot it. That's the worst. There's nothing. There's nothing worse than that. And I and so I've 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 spoken. I've preached. I've preached this from the rooftops. Like you will only bring back the work that you promote. You will only bring back the work you promote. So if you're a a fledgling wedding photographer that really wants to shoot motocross or vice versa, um, and I use those analogies because they are so different, um, but but people are out there that want to do that. If you are not investing into your own career to shoot stuff that you want to then, you want to eventually do for a living, you will never book that work. No no client is just going to be like, oh, I, you know, I saw... Um, on your Instagram, you, you are a great portrait photographer, but I just had this idea that you might want to shoot underwater photography. They're never going to know mm-hmm. because people are so afraid to kind of take a step back from whatever their cash cow is or whatever they feel comfortable. And so for me, I've, I've really been cognizant of only putting out the work that I want to bring back. Not, and not yes, that. I've shot everything you can imagine from beer campaigns on the beach in Mexico to, you know, technology with, you know, the, the Apple iPad blank, 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 and all kinds of stuff for every commercial client you can envision. But I don't show you that on these channels. I don't put that front and center on my website. Yes, it's available. And if, if clients want to do a deep dive, they can see it. But I think there's such an importance nowadays to what you put out into the world is what you're going to bring back. Yeah. But on that same point, haven't you ever had anybody call you up or contact you saying, I see what you do, these environmental portraits, this exotic, extreme travel kind of stuff. What my product is totally unrelated to that, but I like the way you think and I like the way you see. What can you do for this? Here's what we do. What ideas do you have? Has anyone ever yeah, approached all, you that way? All, all the time. Oh, so all you do get work that's unrelated to what you're showing. But, but un, unrelated is a, is, a, is a far cry. That's a different thing. They're not saying... I love the the wild locations and the places that you shoot. Do you want to come into my studio and shoot on a white seamless my product? No, they usually want to infuse their product into these locations. So again, if if I'm the guy that has been to Iceland 39 times, I've been there for a laundry list of reasons. I've directed, mm-hmm. you know, Super Bowl TV commercials there. I've um, shot Apple campaigns, two of them there. I've been there for multiple um, surf editorial trips, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Point being is that, is that because of my experience and because I've put my work out there, 
other opportunities have come, but they're still rooted in the same mentality that people want to go to X location and now infuse the new Jeep Wrangler or whatever that might be. Right. So, so (laughs) yeah, I get inquiries a lot and that's, that's a big part of my business, but it's, it's still kind of, it's still all built into that whole process of the fact that like, I know where my specialties lie. And I think, um, it's a, it's a very easy, um, it's a very easy connection to make to realize like, okay, well I could see how my product could fit into one of the, one of the projects that Chris is doing Mm -hmm. and or one of the places that Chris has been. Has there any, have you ever taken an assignment or turned down an assignment that was offered to you because it was just a little bit too far out of your comfort zone? Uh, I'm not saying that you don't go out of it, but is this anything that came up? That's a great question. That's a great question. And yes, I have turned down a lot of assignments. Um, I've turned down a lot of assignments because morally I don't, they don't sit right with me or, um, I've turned down a lot of assignments because they just, here's, here's one like really great lesson that I've realized, um, you know, over the last decade and a half, uh, shooting this stuff is that you often have this concept that there's this company, this one brand, the, the creme de la creme, right? The, the, the biggest, best, baddest in the business that you would love to work for. You'd love to put your name behind. And then all of a sudden you book that job with them and you realize, well, Oh, well, I can't, I can't even, I'm under, you know, NDA. They don't want me to tell anybody that I've worked for them. They're not going to put my name on any of the images. Um, I'm not really shooting work that's inspiring me and the day rate kind of sucks. So all of this stuff you do for them, although it's a great stroke for your ego and it's great to have in your portfolio that you could show clients privately, it doesn't really benefit you in the end, as opposed to like, maybe client B who's like a little smaller, but they're really excited for you to shoot it. They want to put your name all over it. They want to promote that you did it. They they're giving you total creative freedom and they're paying you more. I think that sometimes we have this sort of, we we put companies up on a pedestal or we have expectations of what it's going to be like to shoot for so-and-so and it's not. And I think that what I've realized just to answer your question about, you know, if I've turned down work, I mean, I really try to evaluate, am I, am I wanting to work for this brand? Because I think it's, is it is it actually going to benefit me? Like what's actually going to benefit me in the long run? Is it the brand who is going to give, who is going to grant me the exposure that I feel like I deserve? Or is it the brand who just wants me to pick up a camera and shoot it because I have a camera, mm-hmm. right? So I because think- that's just a, that's just yeah. a larger version of that same principle. What about on the flip side of that? Have you turned down a shot or an assignment of some sort just based on the, the, the danger level or the, the physicality level or the or technical level or, or something. That's really um, what I was going yeah, for. There was a, I, I was, I was supposed to go shoot a volcano in Nicaragua, um, as a part of this big project that was really cool and had a lot of awesome people on board and, uh, they eventually did it. But, um, but the reason I turned it down wasn't because it was too unsafe or anything. It just, it just, there just wasn't, um, the ducks weren't in a row. Right. And, uh, it, that's, I mean, and I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. You know, I go over a lot of this stuff with like my agent, like, is this a good idea? Is this not? I'll go over with my wife, you know, I'll go over it internally. And, and I've never turned down a job because it felt too dangerous. It just didn't feel like, like if I'm going to be giving that type of risk to a job like this, I want to make sure it 
A, pays well, you know, B, brings the right types of images back so that I can use those to bring in, garner more work. So what percentage of the assignments that you run by your wife for approval, does she roll her eyes around, <laughs> but you still take it? Are you kidding me? <laughs> she rolls her eyes at every single one, you know, and I'm like, Somebody has to hey, be the adult there, go, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go paragliding through the desert for like 10 days or you know, I mean, she's, of course, she's like, uh, okay, well, gra grateful we have life insurance. You yeah, know? right. Is <laughs> the policy up to date, right? <laughs> gotcha. So, how, I mean, with all the stuff you're doing, can you put a number on how many days you're out in the field, you know, per per month? Or or I know it probably I would varies, say about six, six months out of the year, maybe a little more. Six maybe months like six, yeah. six to Six to eight. Um, yeah. You know, there's been some hard years where, like, I've been promoting a film and I've been on tour with a film and as a photographer, everybody knows, you know, that there's years where you're really promoting something you're doing mm -hmm. and that takes a lot. That's kind of like an investment year. Yeah, of course. Oh, sure. I always yeah. tell people like, yeah, it's this, this is a year where you're investing back into yourself. So you're, you're putting time into your, your own work so that the next year you can hopefully benefit from that work. And, um, you know, years that I've promoted a film and I've done, you know, 80 to a hundred film screenings, I was gone for nine months out of the year. Um, and that was really hard, super hard, but, it also was just something I had to do, right? And and I think I'm I'm reaping the benefits of that now. And I think I think the years kind of they 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 kind of you know undulate like that. Yeah. And do do these assignments ultimately end up getting you to that moment where it's just you and the camera and, and the landscape? I mean, I guess that's the whole reason you're doing it. But I can imagine with some of them, especially if it's a commercial shoot or or even a filmed shoot. You know, you have DPs, you have production people, and I mean, do you do you have certain shoots where you don't really get to that place that you ultimately want to get to in the sense of, uh, you know, the, the the experience with you and the camera? Absolutely. I mean, I would be lying if I say that there are not periods of time that go by where I feel like a shell of a human, <laughs> just kind of just kind of clicking the shutter, being like, oh, you know, when's the next time I can get back into into nature and whatnot. But, but I, I, I understand that, um, this is a part of the process. Yeah. Kind of leading from this idea of, of, uh, you know, having big teams and crews. Can, can you talk a little bit about this idea of working with a team, particularly with the talent that you work with, the surfers, the climbers, um, you know, how important and, and how collaborative are those relationships? I mean, do you, you know, I must, I imagine you have a team of people or at least some people that are go, your go-to guys and girls. Is that the way it works with you when you need a surfer or a climber or, or somebody out there with you? Or does that supplied for you usually? I have a, um, I have a great staff at my studio in Pismo beach. Um, mm. I, you know, over the years, my office is kind of undulated in size, depending on if we have a gallery mm. that's open or whatnot. And, um, we have mm. like seven employees. Right. Um, but, keep in mind, like this is all something that has very, very, very slowly grown from one, you know, very, very part-time employee to two part-time employees, to an intern and an employee to et cetera, et cetera. And, and I, I would say like, you know, there's this, it's, it's really funny. Cause I, I've had, I've had people like, Oh man, you know, uh, you know, I, I hear, I hear you, uh, you don't edit any of your own photos. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't. Not anymore. Why the hell would I want to do that? My job is to be a photographer I want to be out shooting. If I'm spending two to three weeks to a month editing my photos from the last shoot, what does that mean? I can't go out and do another job. And so what I've often tried to explain to people is that um, the reliance upon having an editing style that is so uniquely your own that it can't be taught somebody else is a huge hindrance. And so for me, it's, it's really basic. Like our photographs are not 
the, the editing process, the, the post-processing is not so complicated that, that I can't teach it to somebody mm-hmm. because really my goal is to continually be shooting or speaking or on to the next thing. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm doing. I'm, I'm on to the next job. Mm-hmm. And, and what I realized is that the, the, the importance of kind of building out a staff, it, it evolved from the idea that I was on assignment and I had a deadline I couldn't make. And so I realized I had to have somebody available to submit images. And so as I've left, more and more and more, the, the team is usually wrapping up the next job. Like today, I'm right. at home taking a podcast, and right. the team is building a deck for a new shoot that we're doing, and they're wrapping up images from another mm-hmm. shoot that I did. And you know, um, and so this relationship, not only with the athletes but with the um, the staff you have, is really is really rooted upon what are my expectations. Well, they all are fairly active people. They know the jobs that we have to do. They know that. You know, at the drop of a hat, there might be a shoot in Tahiti that requires us all to be swimming with cameras. And those are people that are capable of doing that. Now, what I've realized is that your staff will evolve based upon what your needs are as a photographer. I've done shoots where it's like a 60-person crew and lights and grip and this and that shooting, you know, a corona spot or something like that. And I and I hired um I hired one of Annie Leibowitz's old assistants for that job because he was the best person for the job. Right. Now most of the time, my intern, my in-house staff can handle everything that we throw at them. But there are occasions where they just that they're it's out of their wheelhouse. Right. Um, when it comes to athletes, it's honestly the byproduct of relationships I've built over time. There's people I love to work with, but it's a little bit different because when I was shooting a lot of editorial back in the day, that was like you know I was working with the same couple guys over and over and over. Uh, nowadays if I get a chance to work with athletes, it's because they're sponsored by a company that I'm shooting for, or I'm doing a project or something like that. So I have a bunch of great working relationships, but they aren't the same people every time. Usually. I'm taking on that a little bit further, actually, and based on a a question that John had earlier, you're talking about working and, um, you have a vision, but you're also working with large commercial accounts and with commercial accounts, you also get, uh, art directors, designers, the client, and you have a whole entourage. Do you rely on your staff to keep, you know, the client like at bay so that you can do your job? Usually in those initial creative calls, I just try to lay things out like, hey, this is the way I work. I, I, you're you're going to throw off my flow if you guys are constantly inundating me with questions or this or that. And what I find is that it's really the producer's job on a, an assignment to to create that level of separation. And your interaction with the with the athletes with the, with the talent is do you? I, I imagine that's the kind of the most important. But there's times where you guys are you know yards hundreds of feet away and there's mountains and water between you. Uh, I mean, do you, do you interact a lot with him? Do you give direction a lot? And I mean, do you push them as hard as you push yourself? I, I kind of, exp- I, I think that's one of the key things is that I, I try to work with, with athletes or assistants or crew that I know can keep up with the energy level that I have and the mm-hmm. expectation that I have, which is like, you know, we, we want to shoot until we have the shot or we want to shoot until the light is gone or we want to shoot until there's good light or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. And, and that is, you know, I feel like I've kind of made a name for myself in that regard, whether good or bad that like, I, you know, I I work as hard as I would if I was on a personal assignment or if I'm on a commercial assignment, it doesn't matter. So I think that that work ethic just comes from the fact that, um, um, 
is that I, I, this is, this is how I know how to work. I don't really know how to work any other way. Yeah. If somebody was like, Hey, it's, it's, you know, 3 PM wrap time. I just don't know how to stop really. It's, it's <laughs> probably a character flaw. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I think this gets back to something that Ellen thought about earlier. And when you start, you know, doing your own thing and, and well, living out of your car, you got to hustle, right? I mean, and, and, and hopefully <laughs> that, uh, that continues as you go. I absolutely agree. And you know what? I would say that those early, um, those early experiences hustling and living in my car and having, you know, been below poverty level, you know, trying to sustain a career. Um, I really look back on those as times of strength to like pull and think about, you know, how I know how, how low I know things have been because I feel like it allows me to have a a keen understanding of what I'm capable of. Did you know you can brew beer out of brake fluid? I don't know if you tried that when you were uh, back in the day. It's definitely not something I've tried in the past, but that sounds interesting. <laughs> so maybe we can use that as a little jumping off point to talk a little bit about gear. Yeah, you know, and maybe the, kind of the, the evolution of uh, of the of the equipment you've worked with yeah. over the years. I imagine we've all, we, you know, I don't know what you shoot or 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 what you're. I'm sure you shoot many different cameras, styles, and brands. But uh, has there been kind of go to uh, items and, and that you're really comfortable with? Uh, maybe we can start with cameras and then we can get talking about lenses and, and focal lengths and things like that. I, I've been using the mirrorless system for about the last eight years. I was oh, okay. a really early adopter to yeah. the Sony system. Oh, yeah, okay. um, before my when, when my editors were like, what kind of files are these? They don't even understand how to, they couldn't even open them on their computer. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it was, was it was a reason? challenge. Like, why, it's why'd funny you make that jump? What, what, what was the initial Oh, it's call? simple. Yeah. It was just smaller. Yeah. It was just smaller. I, I was going on a job to Norway where I was going to be on snowmobiles mm-hmm. um, doing this assignment. And I knew that like the last thing I was going to be doing on a snowmobile while riding was like holding up a camera to my eye and like try to like jumble it around. So the fact that I could like look at a screen mm-hmm. and know what my exposure is and fire off a couple frames. And when you're shooting inside of a big survival suit, having a big DSLR is not something that you want to dedicate energy to or space or heat or anything. Right. Mm-hmm. So a tiny little AP, it was like the NEX seven was one of my first cameras I bought. Right. And that thing was super badass. I loved it. Right. And I, I used it and I realized that, um, shortly after I was like, Whoa, the dynamic range on this thing is insane. So I was going to these places with really harsh light and I was comparing my full frame camera to this APS-C camera. And I was like, I was like, well, this is, uh, this is just way better. Like this is a way better system. And I was, I was just really impressed. And I really realized that like the, the amount that I could push the files, meaning not like, you know, saturating in this and that, but but the amount of like light I could bring back out of that dynamic range was huge. Um, I was shooting that thing all the time, like never even putting it up to my eye, just looking at the back screen. And some of my favorite images were shot with that camera. And it was just so, um, you know, I've always thought like the, the, the best camera is not the one you have with you. It's (laughs) the one you're willing to pull out. Right. Because (laughs) how often do we have like a camera in our backpack and we're not going to use it? I think that that's really the evolution of that statement. It's like, is for me being able to tuck it into my jacket in these harsh cold conditions that was huge. I still do rely upon a lot of those like the A6600 and some of those smaller cameras for my more expedition work. Hmm. Um, you know, and and pull out the bigger cameras. And what when, would be the, the uh, what right. would be the factor that would, you know, kind of decide you to to take the the smaller camera compared <laughs> to the bigger one? Um it, it, again, it always comes down to like are you willing to pull it out? Hmm. You know, like if you can if if you're in a a backcountry situation and you are, you know, carrying something around on your chest or around your neck for 
hours and hours at a time. Is that going to be uncomfortable? Yeah. yeah. Is it going to be worthwhile? Um, and so, you know, when I'm backpacking or when I'm like, you know, if I'm on a trip where I'm on, on the water a lot, um, it, it always comes down to that. I mean, I, I, I would on any commercial shoot, I'm going to be shooting the a seven R four on a commercial shoot. It's much different, right? There's no weight or size limitations. You're not really going that far, et cetera, et cetera. But if it's an editorial trip or more of an expedition or something along those lines, um, then, you know, I'm, you're always having to make sacrifices. And one of the things that I never want to sacrifice is I never want to sacrifice my ease of movement because to me, it's, it's the most important thing is getting to the right spot, not necessarily having, you know, the right megapixels or the perfect lens or whatever. Um, if that's going to inhibit you from getting where you need to be. What about, you know, working in, in the cold? I mean, are there any things that, uh, you can throw our way. I'm sure you've been asked this question a lot, but, uh, you know, gear related challenges with the weather, tripods, things freezing up, uh, and salt water batteries, of all course, the, all the know, good stuff and uh, anything that you can throw that we wouldn't kind of expect. From, oh, from I mean, dude, it's, it's endless, yeah. right? It's an endless process of, of learning. One thing I would, I always tell every photographer, I'm like, Hey, you want to really know how your gear performs? Mm put a big thick pair of gloves on the thickest you can find <laughs> and then and then try to operate everything try to operate your tripod yeah. because those are those are yeah those are all going to be moments where you're going to be cursing at this thing like why are the buttons so small why is this tripod so you know you wanted to bring this super light tripod but then you can't even get it open with gloves on you're going to be freezing out there yeah. that's a huge pain right mm. um, and so i think too with batteries i've always um, I've always felt like uh, one of the key components for me is like I, I keep them close to my chest pocket or I'll keep them in a thermos or I'll keep a uh, hand warmer in a little bag with the batteries right, or something right. like that. Because it doesn't matter what kind of battery is. If, if there is cold heat, is if cold. Is, yeah, cold is cold and they're going to zap the energy from them just like your phone, right? Mm-hmm. So that's been, that's been a really big, um, big component like – you know, on a lot of shoots, we've had just bags of batteries sitting in a thermos or something like that. Um, that's really helped to keep them insulated. I mean, I think, um, I've, one, had ca- I've had cameras just stop working in the temperature, and we're not even talking about sub zero. We're talking about twenties, where it just the error message comes up, and I got yeah, nothing. What, I can what do. also happens quite often oh, the, the, the worst, LCD man. could stop working; it mm-hmm. freezes, but the camera will continue working. Right. But you have no idea what your exposures are. True. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I uh, I one hundred percent agree. That has always that's always been a, a pretty big fear. And I know that I, there's a lot of photographers that I kind of look up to Ragnar Axelson and others who have shot in, in Norway and, um, and, uh, Alaska and other places a lot. And they just, you know, trying to get their pieces of advice because, you know, they're the one shooting in like negative 40 or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't find myself there super often, but man, is it, is it an absolute hardship on the cameras? Have you ever had like a total fail where the cameras just wouldn't work and, and you couldn't get what you wanted and it was? Just, I have never, yeah. luckily, had a normal fail. Thanks, goodness. How about <laughs> abnormal fails? You left that one open. Talk about that a little bit. I have had a lot of cameras <laughs> get get doused with salt water. Like oh, yeah. I've had salt water just hit the button mm. and nothing else, and like just the button stops working because of corrosion. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What about what do you what do you do when you're not on assignment? Do you shoot uh, around the house? Do you I don't know? Do you shoot your family? You must shoot your family, of course. Do you shoot with the same set of gear a, a, at home, or uh, how things change when it's not an assignment? 
when I'm not on assignment, I barely ever pick up a camera. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a short break. We come back with more with Chris Burkhardt. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. Okay, we are back. Uh, Chris, let me ask you a question. Can you break down how you captured that incredible photograph of that surfer uh, surfing under the northern lights uh, for the shoot? Was it Surfer Magazine in 2016? It's pretty nuts. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, is it is it a, the photo of the surfer under the northern lights? Yeah, that surfing yeah. On the wave. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the basic the basic story is a uh, is that that was the byproduct of I think incredible technology, um, and with the Sony A seven S two coming out, mm -hmm. and also a lot of patience and testing and sampling. Um, it was it was a really amazing moment in my life of course but um it was something where we had gone there we had we had tried to shoot it once it wasn't really successful we went back tried to shoot it again and and basically we had to shoot iso 24000 oh, wow. yeah okay, um, okay. on a on a wide open f14 lens i think either a 24 or a 35 um and we used this really bright light like just a flashlight on the beach to try and illuminate the back of the wave a yeah, little bit yeah that's what we were wondering about yeah go ahead yeah, yeah and uh and we you know the main thing was to film that right so we weren't we were there to shoot a photograph but it was mostly to try and film it and create uh -huh. footage and uh and we got that and at the same time we obviously shot this photograph and it was it was truly a, you know a remarkable feat of technology a marriage of technology uh -huh. and and kind of a dream in that moment. But um, to be honest, it definitely took some post-processing to get the noise away and other things like that. But I mean, the, the Northern Lights were just as bright and just as powerful as you see. And to be able to film them in real time was so special. And you were you were shooting and uh, video and stills using this, uh, the Sony a7S II, correct? It was all shot with the same camera. Yep, we had two side by side. Yeah, I've seen some footage of that where the two cameras are there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Did you, did, how many runs did the surfer have to take to get it? Or was it just... Number I mean, they one. surfed for a couple hours and okay. caught as many waves as they could. It, what, yeah. it, the thing is, is like the Northern Lights, as you know, they don't just hang around. So they'd be out, they'd go away, they'd be out, they'd go away. It was really, really, um, hmm. yeah, really awesome. So, and where, where did you go to photograph that? Um, that was in Iceland, Northern Iceland. Okay. Yeah, yeah part of that. Well, that place is coming up a lot lately, that country. It's all <laughs> of a, you never used to hear of it. That wasn't every, every other day you're hearing stories about it. It's crazy. You know, it's pretty crazy. I think for for the um, the adventure junkie, it definitely has a lot to provide. It definitely is suffering from some over tourism um, yeah, in certain areas, is. but mm -hmm. but but in many ways, um, it's also still so ripe for exploration. The problem is most people are just shuttled down the south coast on this on the same six hour stretch as everybody else, which right. is unfortunate. All right, let me jump over to this. That it was a, a somebody highlining in Joshua Tree during the super moon, and, and you caught right. them, you know, completely silhouetted by that moon. Can you talk a little bit about that? Was that uh, your own idea? Was that uh, brought to you by somebody? And, and yeah, yeah, again, just my own my own idea. I've always been really intrigued by the concept of like marrying celestial bodies, celestial events with a photograph, and and this was kind of one of those things I've shot highlining quite a bit before and have some good talented friends who are highliners and mm -hmm. I I um 
I knew this was happening and, you know, it was the super moon event of the season. And we went to Joshua tree with the hopes of, of, um, shooting something really unique and it worked out. It yeah, was say so. yeah. absolutely crazy. And something that, um, it was a hard one because unlike the other one where there was a lot of planning and, and testing, this was sort of like, imagine running around the desert, getting like, as the moon is rising with like a 600 millimeter. And if you can imagine like, this is something where, uh, the moon rises pretty quickly when you're shooting with a long lens. Oh, yeah, and so we're yeah. constantly running, running closer to our subject, running closer to our subject, closer, closer, closer. And it's been, <laughs> um, it's been pretty amazing. And were you in touch with the highliner? Would you guys have any kind of communication and you're saying, you know, oh, stay yeah, yeah. there? All, yeah, always. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, you gotta have walkie talkies, right. you know I mean? You're not really telling them to necessarily like stay in one spot, but you are, you are telling him to like, Hey, I need you to like, walk back to the middle of the line again and mm -hmm. oh can you like try and be a little more stable a little less movement because i'm shooting slower shutter speed mm -hmm. i mean the communication i think this is what's been really nice is that working with athletes to create an image has really translated well into the directing role of like i'm going to direct a movie now i want to tell my my actor or my my subject what to do mm -hmm. yep Sure. No, it's important. Yeah, yeah. And you said you were shooting a 600 millimeter lens? For yeah, that? yeah. We, we had a 600 mil and I think a 400 mil too. Okay. All right. And do you remember, was it another real high ISO moment or were you able to uh, no, keep that No, I believe down? this one wasn't super high ISO. Mm -hmm. I just think that we had to shoot fairly slow shutter speed at times um, and then faster shutter speed at other times. It was kind of a, it was a little bit of an arithmetic and this is kind of the reason I love these experiences because they force you to think quickly on your feet. It's a bit of like, you know, you're scrolling the shutter one way, you're scrolling the shutter back where you're, 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 you know, you're messing with the ISO, you're running forward. It's, it feels like you're an active participant in the photograph and that's yeah. really special. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's yeah. what makes it fun. That's why we're out there. Yeah, sure. Okay. I'm going to jump ahead to two more and then we'll, we'll let you go, Chris. But I did want to ask you about that. There's a shot of, uh, in an abandoned plane with the, with the auroras behind them and, uh, some incredible light, which I assume was put inside the plane. Can you talk about that shot? A little different from a lot of your stuff, but I thought it was pretty cool. You know what I'm referring to? Yeah, absolutely. This was on the back end of a commercial shoot. We just had an extra day. And um, to be honest, it was a really interesting photograph because photographs are, are a funny thing. You know, usually the, the final image is, is the byproduct of a bunch of other images that lead up to it, right? So so we got there, you know, we, we Park the car. This is you used to be able to drive there, and now you have to hike like two miles. Or now so they're making to it. you got to work for it now. Yeah, which is which is great. What happened is the farmer made a road out there, and then people started driving all over the place like assholes, and then that's what happens, you know. So people just people don't understand that in Iceland and many other countries, these aren't national parks, right? These aren't government funded or government protected areas. They're they're people's land who have allowed the general public to go and experience them. So. This is private property, and the guy was just like kind of over it. So it's a yeah. bummer, you know. Uh, okay, um, interesting insight. Okay, all right. Well, that should also serve warning to people who have cameras and take liberties. Please don't. If you don't belong, don't be. I agree. And 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 so this was a, a funny one. We pulled up, um, we parked the car, walked around the car, um, and I shot a long exposure. And I was just like, I just wanted to shoot a long exposure of the plane because I hadn't seen any images of it at that time. And I had this crazy glow through the plane and it was because of the car lights, right? Like right. there was the, there was uh, the parking lights on hmm. and I was like, Oh, this is amazing. And I was like shooting that and shooting the Milky way. And then I had a friend with me and I wanted to grab a photo of him on top of it. And, and you know, looking up the Milky way just to add some, a subject to it. And so that, that was the evolution of that, 
of that image. Mm-hmm. And did you go back a second time or you just kind of worked it through that night? I mean, that was it. You know, uh-huh. you, I mean, do you ever, do you ever get a second time um, in those situations? It's like, it's like the Northern lights are out. The Milky Way's out <laughs> the next night. The next night it was probably snowing and hailing right, and right, raining. Right. But yeah, so, don't they have an app for that? You can call it all up as you need it. <laughs> Actually, that, that reminds me, do you, are there any apps that you do rely on when you're checking weather and you're checking positions well, of stars? Yeah. I mean, there are some really great apps that are, that are more general, mm-hmm. but the issue is like most of these apps are, are kind of taking a big pool from around the world. So for me, when I go to Iceland, I, I have a specific Iceland forecast, gotcha. meaning I use the, this website called Vedder, V-E-D-U-R.is. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that I, uh, I rely on. And that one has just epic, epic Northern Lights forecast. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what I rely upon. Okay. And I just wanted to be clear on that. Ultimately, did you play some lights inside that, inside that plane or that was lights from a car? I mean, the ultimate final uh, shot. You must. No, have no, that was just from the lights from the car. Oh wow, <laughs> that works. Okay. Wow. All right. It's funny because I was uh, regarding the shot of, uh, you know, the lights and the surfer that we spoke about earlier. I, I was wondering if it was car lights, but uh, you said that you had you had put up uh, some special lights to really get that that glow. Well, on yeah, the, back. the other one was actually somebody standing on the beach holding a flashlight. Okay. Yeah. Well done. Well done. All right, and then just the last one is probably the the image that uh, we see the most of all, which is. Uh, the surfer with the volcano in the background. And uh, if you could, again, tell us a bit about that, that'd be great. I mean, uh, maybe technically it's not uh, as, I don't say, I want to say advanced, but maybe not as complicated as some of the other shots. But uh, where is that and, and who's the surfer and, and how'd that shot come about? Which which uh, which image is that? Story? Well, I, I guess <laughs> the one that's on the cover of your website and, and the cover of the book. That's, oh, uh, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. So... So yeah, I mean that that's a that's in a really special place. It's in this remote island um, in the Aleutian Islands. It's it's a stretch from mm. Alaska to to Russia. Oh, wow. And uh, I was there on a magazine assignment. We were making a film, and and that photograph is is seemingly you know it's it's great, it's cool, but to the to the average viewer, it's seemingly meaningless. To me, it's everything because I spent the majority of my career kind of trying to prove that there was worthwhile surf in these remote places of the world and at the time i don't think it was very validated that there was and this trip really kind of broke that open is it fair to say that's kind of what what where a lot of this is coming from i mean personally anyway this this drive to to find places that people haven't seen and been and and i obviously you're incorporating surfing which you know so well and and is is everything that's come from your career uh (laughs) kind of seeded with this idea Absolutely. I mean, that, that, I think that's, that's something that connects and transcends across all my work is this desire to, to show that these places are, are so blank, blank and blank, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, <laughs> they're, they're worthwhile and exotic. And, and it's also a funny one because I've, I've spread, expressed this to a lot of people before is like, one of the best things you can do for photography is to go to places others have not been. Mm. So there's nothing to compare it to. And I've never really been the type of person who is the greatest technical photographer out there. I don't really care about that. I care about story and I care about connection to place and people. And I care about the ability to show and illustrate the beauty of a location. And I think that, um, to me, a huge part of that is the fact that like, I'm just the one who's willing to go. (laughs) I've just been the one who's willing to put in the time to research and like this location and others, you know, it took years of researching and planning. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. And quick question: Do you, you, you do surf yourself, true? And 
Do you yeah, still, do you yeah. Still surf? I grew up. I grew up. I grew up surfing, and it's just like if you grow up in a mountain town, you ski. Yeah. The ocean to me was more of like a babysitter growing up. It was just kind of like this whole like thing where I would get dropped off and and you know have to get picked up in the end of the day. My mom would be like, and my mom would be like, you know, have fun. You know, here's two bucks. You right, know, sort right. of thing. <laughs> um, yeah. It's like Allen and Coney Island, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but they didn't give me the two dollars. Right, though. you got to steal that. They yeah, just yeah. said, look, there's plenty of pails around. You could find what to eat. Don't worry about it. Cool. Um, <laughs> right. Maybe uh, to, to wrap this up a little bit, what would you say? You know, now that you've you you know your career is uh, is advanced and you're doing so many things, what what's your what's the best skill that you bring to all this? Can you say that? Um, what's your best me, skill? The that? best skill yeah, that yeah, I've yeah. known. What, what do you bring? Or the what, best skill that I've learned over the years. What, which one? Well, what do you, yeah, that you bring to these situations? I mean, because obviously you're, you're leading some people out there, but you also need to do your personal work. You need to kind of get in touch with, with the, the scene around you, with the nature, with your, your technical aspects of photography, but you're also, you know, leading a team of people. Uh, you know, what have you found kind of stands out in, in your way of getting things done? What stands out? I mean, I would say that, there has to be what I've realized over the years is that it's getting burnt out is a real thing and allowing yourself. What I've always found is if I'm going to go out on any assignment, I'm going to give 110%, which means that my creative well or my well of inspiration, like an actual well has to be full. So I have to, I have to take the time to give myself the time to be inspired, to do the things I love to do. And that really, that's really why I put the camera down when I'm home. I'm not. You have I'm to recharge con- your batteries. Yeah, I'm not constantly running yeah. around with a camera trying to shoot new photographs. And yeah, at times it bugs me. There's moments that slip by, but I also realize, like you know, my time with my kids, my time with my family, my time with my studio, my time just being out in nature that has fueled me to a point where I know when I'm on assignment, I'm going to push harder than anybody else. And and I think that's important. And I feel like if I've learned one piece of advice that might be a good ending note is just that. I've realized that you don't need to try and do everything well. You don't no editor mm. has ever asked that of any photographer. And if they do, that's a big warning sign. If you're trying to prove that you can shoot baby photos and landscapes and, you know, portraiture and underwater photography, that's a terrible thing because you're spreading yourself way too thin. You need to be the best at something, be a specialist, and then build your portfolio from there. And that's what everybody that I look up to does and has done, and that's what I've aimed to do. All right. I actually, I have one little additional question I want to throw at you. Many people discourage their children from going into their line of work. You have two sons. Does this rule apply? Would you kill them if they started doing what you're doing? Oh, you know what? That's a great, that's a really good question, actually. And I, I would say that I absolutely, I don't discourage my kids at all. From, I've not wanted necessarily for them to do what I do, mainly, mainly because I want them to have their own thing. I want them to have their own, their own, their own love. I, I want them to have their, their, their sort of their, their whole own deal. If you know what I mean, you know, yeah. like, I don't, yeah. I, I fear, I fear them growing up being like a photographer and you know, Oh, well my dad shot this or my dad did this. And I, I, I worry about that. And that's a real concern that I have that I, I want to make sure my kids, like they know that I, I am, I guess the way I've seen it is like when it comes to our kids, I want them to be able to teach me something different that I don't know. And so that when I'm teaching them, cause you're, you're teaching them your whole life. Like how cool will it be to have something that you can share with them 
and then something they can share with you. It makes them feel like equals, not like they're always trying to get your approval or they're always trying to live up to your sort of your sort of expectation. And that's that's kind of the way that I've always looked at it. Right. You're a good like, dad. I like that. No, two points. Well, Seriously, that's a great. That's that's the right attitude. Is the best attitude. I, I got it. Two um, points. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a mindset thing. You know, it takes some time to like figure that out. Like I, I just, but I've, but I've, you know, I would honestly be honored if they wanted to pursue this craft, as I'm sure every dad would. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if they could support us in our old age. That's the most important thing. Heck yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need it. My body's going to be broken, man. <laughs> right, 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 right. Totally. Anything coming down the pike? Any interesting assignments coming up or projects that you're working on or want to work um, on? I mean, I'll be, I'll be in Boston showing my film and doing a slideshow um, at, the, at the beginning of November. The beginning of November. And then I'll be at the end of this month. I'm not sure when this is releasing, but I'll also be speaking in New York City at a at a conference um, called Stocked, it's like a it's like a gear trade show thing that I'll be talking about equipment and this and that. It's ah, um, okay. That's on the twenty seventh, so I'll be out out that way in just a couple of weeks here. And then um, I got a new book coming out in November about Iceland aerial photography and um, the importance of Iceland's waterways and protecting those. Great. So, Chris, if people want to see more of your work, uh, what sites should they go to? What are the addresses, Instagram, websites, all that? Yeah, I would say that the best place to uh, to, to find me would just be, you know, online. <laughs> if somebody wants to, uh, you know, be be uh, willing to Google my name, there's a, there's a billion things that'll pop up. And to be honest, like, websites are cool. I love them. But I would rather have somebody just read some cool article about a place that we've been or 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 something like that. And there's there's plenty of those out there. Um, social media is always a great way to get like a, a quick snippet of like what daily life is like, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm out there website, Instagram, the whole, the just whole, the whole gist, just you know, or, or just, yeah. 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 But I, w- I would say that to me, the importance of like real human interaction is still the most important thing. And if there's ever a chance to like hear me speak or present or, or teach a workshop, I'd always love to just I just, I really love that type of real human interaction. So, well, if anybody wants to have a taste of that too, you have a lot of videos online uh, uh, where, again, when we were researching this show, I I learned a lot about you just watching this stuff and a lot of good insights. Uh, Oh, rad, man. That means a lot. I'm really stoked. No, no, good good work, man. And your attitude's killer. I mean, your energy level is just wonderful. Uh, (laughs) I mean, thank thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. It was really a pleasure. Absolutely, and thank you guys. And I, I've been a, I've been a, you know, customer of BH for literally my entire career. And, Bless uh, your heart. Been a, been a game changer <laughs> for me. And um, yeah, no, I'm I'm honestly like it's it's been an educational tool. And this is these podcast series are awesome. You guys do a great job, and you dive into some good stuff. And I always really appreciate people who do their research, and that means that means the world to me. So right. um, well, cool, thank guys. You so much, thank Chris. you so much. Are you still not a subscriber to our show? All you have to do is head over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or Spotify, and sign up. It's absolutely free. And you can also find us on the B&H Explorer website, as well as the B&H Photography Podcast Facebook group. For now, on behalf of Jason, John, and myself, thank you so much for tuning in today. <laughs> <laughs>